Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Aura Okunbi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. When the very rich decide to give away money, they often worry about how it will be spent. Now, more donors are trying to simplify the process by going straight to those who need it the most. Introducing No Strings Giving. And what is adorable is not merely frivolous. Cuteness has recently become a subject of serious academic inquiry. We visit a new exhibition that's an examination of cuteness and how it's found its way into pretty much every aspect of culture. First up, though. Retaliation was promised, and over the weekend, it was delivered. America has again dropped bombs in Iraq and Syria. These strikes were the explicit payback for the deaths of three soldiers who were killed a week before at an American outpost in Jordan, after Iranian-backed militias launched a drone attack. We will respond. We'll do that on our schedule, in our time, and we'll do it in a manner of the president's choosing as commander-in-chief. Just hours after the bodies of those three Americans arrived home, B-1 bombers flew from America and hit more than 85 targets at seven locations in western Iraq and eastern Syria. And though these are unlikely to be the last retaliatory strikes, America has some serious needle-threading to do in order to get all, and only, what it wants in the region. The Pentagon said the airstrikes targeted both Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and its proxy militias, although they don't seem to have killed any Iranians. The strikes had been telegraphed for days, and it's unlikely the IRGC left any high-level members at the locations that were bombed. Greg Karlstrom is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. There were reports of both Iraqi and Syrian militants killed, and there were videos on social media that showed what looked like weapons depots blowing up in a border town in Iraq, but still too early to really assess how much damage these strikes might have done. So strikes in Iraq and Syria aimed, though, at Iran-backed militias, ultimately all connected in one way or another with Israel's war in Gaza. Let's do some disentangling for a start here, Greg. In one sense, yes, this did begin with the war in Gaza. There have been about 160 attacks on American troops in Syria and Iraq since October 7th, attacks carried out by Iranian-backed militias in both of those countries. And the Americans have, for the most part, 
declined to respond to those attacks. What was different, of course, last week was that one of them killed three American soldiers at an outpost in northeastern Jordan, and that forced an American response because Americans were killed. But again, mostly the policy has been to almost look the other way. That being said, though, the history of this didn't start on October 7th. Iran has spent decades building up what it calls the axis of resistance, a network of armed militias across the region, starting with Hezbollah in Lebanon, which was sort of the charter member of this axis, but then growing to encompass militias in Iraq, Syria, and in Yemen as well. They're not a monolith, these groups. They don't all necessarily have the same aims or the same goals. But one thing that they do broadly agree on is that they want to drive American troops out of the Middle East. And so to that end, there have been years of attacks on American bases in in both Syria and Iraq. The intensity has certainly increased since October 7th. But even if none of this had happened the past four months, even if there had been no war in Gaza, it's quite likely that these militias would have still been carrying out attacks as they have been for many years now. But as you say, the killing of some American troops essentially forced Joe Biden's hand here. Nevertheless, what happened seemed to be relatively calculated, right? It was. There have been calls from Republican lawmakers in Washington for America to respond not just against Iranian-backed militias and perhaps the IRGC abroad, but to strike directly at Iranian territory. And that's something that influential voices like Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina have pushed for in recent days. You don't need manned aircraft. They've got four refineries you can see from space. If you knock one of them out, they would stop this. Our American troops uh, are in harm's way. If the goal is to deter Iran, you're failing miserably. Now, Jake Sullivan, the president's national security advisor, made the rounds of the Sunday talk shows in America this weekend, and he didn't rule out direct strikes on Iranian territory. But I think it's still unlikely. We intend to take additional strikes uh, and additional action to continue to send a clear message that the United States will respond when our forces are attacked or people are killed. Have you ruled out strikes inside Iran? Well, sitting here today on a national news program, I'm not going to get into what we've ruled in and ruled out from the point of view of military action. What I will say is that the president is determined to respond forcefully to attacks on our people. The president also is not looking for a wider war in the Middle East. It would be the first time America has struck directly at Iran since the 1980s. And even back then, during the so-called tanker wars, what it did was attack Iranian ships in the Persian Gulf, Iranian offshore oil platforms, but it didn't directly strike anything on Iranian soil. That's something that the United States simply has not done. And it would be seen as very, very escalatory. And it would probably draw a much bigger response than we've seen so far from the Iranians, not just lashing out at American troops in the region, but perhaps also at Israel or Gulf states, other American partners in the Middle East. So it's something that the administration doesn't really want to do. And it's something that many countries in the region, including those in the Gulf, also don't want the Americans to do. And has there been anything of a response to these strikes in the Middle East? There has been. And as you would expect, it's been a negative response. Iraq declared three days of mourning. There were protests against the strikes. 
the Iraqi government complained that these were a violation of its sovereignty and warned that the region was on the brink of an abyss. We've also heard from the Iranians themselves who condemned the attack. The Iranian interior minister warned that America was fanning the flames of resistance and told it to act wisely. In some ways, a lot of this is bluster. The Iranians and their allies had been expecting the Americans to strike these targets, and what the Americans did wasn't really outside the rules of the game as they have existed for many, many years. But nonetheless, there are concerns that this is another step up the escalatory ladder in the region, and they weren't the only airstrikes over the weekend either. How do you mean? There were also two rounds of American and British strikes in Yemen against the Houthis, the militant group there that has been firing missiles and drones at commercial ships in the Red Sea for the past few months. And so twice on Saturday and on Sunday, there were American bombers that took off from aircraft carriers and struck what the Pentagon said were anti-ship missiles and other military targets in Yemen. Now, Houthis insist that this campaign against shipping is a response to Israel's continued war in Gaza. They say they're going to continue these strikes on ships until the war in Gaza ends. And sure enough, we're about a month into this Anglo-American military campaign against the Houthis, but they have also continued their attacks against shipping in the Red Sea. The Pentagon says it probably can't deter the Houthis from doing that. They say what they want to do is degrade their ability to continue those attacks, so going after the anti-ship missiles, the drones, the specific military assets that the Houthis have been using, but trying to do that through what have been pretty limited air raids so far, as we've seen in many other conflicts across the region over the past few decades, can turn into a very long game of whack-a-mole. And indeed, it's hard to see how any of this plays out, especially with steps up uh, the escalatory ladder, as you say. What to look out for next? The Americans say they're trying to do two things simultaneously. One of them is to use military pressure to diminish the ability of these militias to attack American troops and to attack ships in the Red Sea. And then in parallel to that, they say they are trying to conduct diplomacy to, in the short term, broker a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas that would bring a short-term truce in the Gaza war. And then to build from that in the longer term into some kind of a permanent ceasefire and perhaps a grand bargain that sees the Saudis normalize ties with Israel in exchange for Israel committing to the creation of a Palestinian state. And so what I'm watching for is whether either of those two things have the slightest possibility of succeeding. And then on the diplomatic front, the question is whether they can even take that first step of a deal between Israel and Hamas because the leaders of both Israel and Hamas are divided or unsure about whether or not to go along with that hostage deal and that truce, let alone be part of some kind of broader grand bargain in the region. Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, began a trip to the Middle East yesterday. He's expected to visit Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Qatar, Israel, and the West Bank in the coming days. Anton Lagardia, our diplomatic editor, will be traveling with him, and I'm sure he will have lots more from the trip, and we'll be following that story with him very closely this week. But both on the military side and the diplomatic side, it's a very tall order for the Americans what they're trying to achieve. Greg, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, 
so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. For generations, philanthropists have had the same big worry when they give money away. Their question is, are their funds going to be spent properly? Avantika Chokoti is an international correspondent for The Economist. The grandfathers of modern philanthropy are probably the industrialists of America's gilded age. That's people like Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller. In 1889, Carnegie wrote that he reckoned that 950 of every $1,000 that went to charity at the time were unwisely spent. At the turn of the millennium, there was a new breed of businessman philanthropist, people like Bill Gates, who had made their money in tech. They were data-driven, tech-savvy, and they thought they had a fix to this. They were going to give away a lot of money, and they were going to bring the discipline of business to the nonprofit sector. We called this at The Economist back in 2006, philanthrocapitalism. Suddenly, big foundations had huge teams that got involved crafting projects for NGOs, non-governmental organizations to deliver. There were long application processes to get this money, and there was painstaking reporting requirements. Two decades on, it's quite clear that this sort of technocratic model puts the brakes on giving. Forbes magazine reckons the 400 richest people in America have given away just 6% of their combined fortunes. In the last few years, you've had a whole bunch of new donors emerge, and they're really a breed that has come out of a string of crises. You've had, in the last few years, the COVID-19 pandemic. You've got wars in Ukraine and the Middle East. And there's been a lot of social movements, from the Me Too movement to the race relations issues in the US. And that's got a new urgency around giving money away. Okay, so who are these new donors and how are they shaking things up? I'd say the new model is probably Mackenzie Scott, the former wife of Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. She came into quite a lot of money in 2019 when they divorced, and she's given away billions of dollars in just a few years. Her trick is just simplicity. We've called it no-strings-giving. The idea is to make big gifts of money to organizations, do lots of due diligence to make sure that they are trustworthy, that they have a plan for how to spend this money, and then just let them get on with it. It's a new model, but quite a few foundations are following it. Quite a few new young donors are following it. And it's really challenging everything that we've assumed about philanthropy for decades. What lessons can be learned from these new donors? There's two big things. The first is that rich people can outsource the grunt work of philanthropy. So Mackenzie Scott hasn't set up a huge foundation and hired hundreds of people to advise her on her giving. She uses some advisors, consulting groups, and she's farmed out that work, which really speeds things up. The second learning is about urgency. It's about getting money out of the door. The new school of giving is called trust-based philanthropy. The idea is that once you've done due diligence on groups, you can trust them. You can hand over the money and allow them to get on with things as they like. So a lot of Mackenzie Scott's grantees send her an annual report. They do whatever sort of reporting they'd like, send her a few pages, let her know how you're getting on, and that's it. There's no more hoops to jump through. And 
Are there any ways of giving that you found really radical? So one popular new way of giving, it's not even that new, but it's really taking off. It's the idea of just handing money to the poor and saying, hey, poor people know best what they need. There's a New York-based non-governmental organization called Give Directly, and they're sort of the pioneers of this. They use mobile transfers. So in somewhere like Kenya, it's M-Pesa. They use surveys, door-to-door surveys, AI, to find communities in need, and they just directly hand money to poor people into their mobile wallets. Last year, I went to Baringo County in Kenya, which is quite a poor rural area, and I spoke to one of the recipients called Grace Jesang Kimasop. She told me how she gets cash transferred directly to her phone. It allows her to pay for things that she couldn't otherwise pay for. And the big attraction of this model is that once the payments infrastructure is set up, it's hugely scalable. And since 2009, GiveDirectly has actually dished out over $700 million around the world this way. Well, less red tape sounds like a good thing, but I'm guessing that also opens up new risks, right? This goes back to that initial question, this nervousness when people give money away about how it's going to be spent, what Give Directly does. It's a hands-off model, and it sounds more hands-off than it really is. What I found on my trip to Kenya was that there's actually a lot of due diligence around the households that receive this money. And people like Grace were getting phone calls, visits from Give Directly staff, checking in on them. And has anyone come, did they come back and check how you spent the money? Or? Yes. So some of the recipients I spoke to get these phone calls asking them what they're spending the money on. There's lots of studies that suggest unconditional cash transfers raise income levels and they also help poverty indicators, things like health, nutrition, education. But there are limits. If everybody gave all their money just as direct transfers, it wouldn't be a good thing for the world. There's no point giving a poor person cash if, when they fall sick, there's no hospital for them to go to. There's no road for them to travel to the hospital on. So you do still need philanthropists to do that sort of very hands-on infrastructure, systems change sort of project too. What does this trend towards no-strings-giving, as you've called it, mean for the future of philanthropy? So look, not all donors are going to feel comfortable giving in this no-strings fashion. There will always be people who get rich, they feel a huge responsibility, they want to roll up their sleeves and get involved in this do-goodery. The trouble is, it's really fashionable to criticise donors. If you look at big organisations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they were criticised hugely during the COVID-19 pandemic. There was, you know, conspiracy theories around their involvement in fighting COVID-19. Even Mackenzie Scott, who's given away record amounts of money, is criticised for things like transparency and speed. The truth is that we should really save our criticism for lots of the rich people who don't give away nearly enough. The point is that variety is what matters in philanthropy. It's a good thing if lots of clever people are experimenting with lots of different ways of giving. Most of all, it's a good thing that we're beginning to question that overly technocratic approach that's really dominated since the turn of the century. Avanska, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Ari. 
Scroll through any social media feed, and before long, you'll see a cute video. It might be a bloodhound on a horse giving each other kisses. Rachel Lloyd is our deputy culture editor. <laughs> or maybe it's a video of a Dalmatian puppy stubbornly refusing to get out of bed. On the internet, there's an unending supply of cute content. On TikTok, there's around 65 million videos that have been tagged with cute. The demand for those clips is huge. They've amassed a total of about 625 billion views. Cute things, of course, are everywhere. Hello Kitty, there's about 50,000 different products with her face on. Everything from phone chargers to first aid kits. In America, puppies have been used to sell beer. Geico uses a really cute gecko to sell its insurance. In Britain, if you want to buy toilet paper, there's a good chance you'll see one with a cartoon koala on it. Interest in cute things has often been seen as trivial, maybe frivolous, definitely a bit girly. But in recent years, it's become a subject of serious inquiry. There's a whole field of academic literature called cute studies dedicated to investigating the adorable. Neuroscientists are studying the effect of cute things on the brain. And a new exhibition at Somerset House in London also examines the ubiquity of cute things in culture. It brings together art, clothes, games, toys and more. I went down there with my producer, Will, to see it for ourselves. And there was, as expected, a lot of Hello Kitty there. We've walked through a couple of rooms of images of cats. One of them is digital art, various different cute outfits. And then and here we have early paintings and photographs and a series of about 300 ceramic sculptures. Are you overwhelmed with cuteness? Not yet, but it certainly is. So we're now walking into a room which you have to walk in through an outline of Hello Kitty's face. It's all bright red and there is a wall facing us that is absolutely round with plushy Hello Kitties of different sizes. I'm looking at a cabinet of different Hello Kitty branded items, things that you'd expect, like a hairdryer, headphones. And then as you move down, there's some more surprising items. My favourite has to be the spam Hello Kitty and the duct tape and the beans, I think that is. Pasta shapes, I'm sorry. <laughs> Hello Kitty duct tape. When you want your things bound together with something cute, I guess. I think cute matters because it has taken over our world, so it has to matter. My name's Claire Catterall, I'm senior curator at Somerset House and I've curated the cute exhibition. Cuteness, people do respond to it in a different way and I think there's a sort of cultural context to it as well. I mean, you get that thing on the internet where someone's having a hard time and they say, send me pictures of cute puppies. I've had it this morning. One of my co-workers sent me a picture of little Daxies being cute. Suddenly it was kind of all fine. Although there is this kind of nostalgic thing about cuteness and a kind of regress to childhood. It feels like it's more than that. It's more than just kind of battening down the hatches. It's about kind of finding a new path through. Because we are naturally attuned to cuteness, it's not exactly a new phenomenon. 
Japanese artists in the Edo period painted puppies or fashioned them into tiny trinkets out of ivory. Technology has offered new ways to enjoy adorable things. With the advent of photography, Harry Pointer took photographs of cats in various anthropomorphized ways, for example, ice skating or sat in a pram. These photographs are on display at Somerset House, and because he added funny little captions to his photographs, he's credited as the originator of the cat meme. It was in the 20th century that cuteness really took off. We have the advent of mass production, which helped create consumer culture around these different items. Japanese kawaii culture also went global. Things like manga and anime took off in the West as well as in Japan. And then we have the internet, and that is what's really supercharged cuteness. People can watch and share cute videos at any time. And in 2022, an estimated 90,000 cat videos were uploaded to YouTube every single day. Cuteness might seem pointless and silly, but it's really not. One expert I spoke to about this compared it to pornography in the sense that it's everywhere and it's incredibly lucrative, but no one really gives it serious consideration. Studies have shown that it makes you feel less anxious and less nervous and generally happier, which has obvious benefits. Other studies have shown useful ways of harnessing cuteness. For instance, putting cute pictures of sea turtles on recycling bins. It helps people use less plastic. That means that an appreciation of cute things is a pleasure in and of itself, but it also has potentially world-changing benefits. So, time to fire up that video of the Dalmatian. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence, and I hope you caught Saturday's Weekend Intelligence on the frankly miserable state of Britain's asylum hotels and what they tell you about migration policy here and elsewhere. What's that? You didn't hear it? Don't tell me it's because you're not a subscriber to Economist Podcasts Plus. Ugh. Okay, okay, here's what we're going to do for you if you sign up during just this month. Half off of an annual or a two-year subscription. That's only a smidgen over two bucks a month. You'll get access to the Weekend Intelligence, the coming reboot episodes of our award-winning Next Year in Moscow, special limited series like Boss Class, all of our weekly podcasts on business, China, American politics, science and technology. Honestly, there's something for you, whatever your interests. Sign up at economist.com slash podcasts plus, or just search Economist Podcasts. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.